Hello everyone and welcome back to the third episode of Nefarious. For those of you that are new here, welcome. My name is Bailey Butchie and I am currently a student at Arizona State University. I am studying criminal justice and forensic psychology and this podcast is part of my final thesis project for my undergraduate degrees. If you have not already, I suggest going back and listening to the very first episode just because it offers a little bit more of an introduction of who I am and what this project is all about. So in today's episode, we will be looking at the case of the Central Park Five and diving deep into the phenomenon that is false confessions and how such a thing can lead to wrongful convictions within the justice system. So just kind of giving you a brief overview of what this case is and what it is we'll be talking about. So in 1989, the brutal attack and rape of Trisha Miley resulted in five young Black and Latino men, Antron McRae, who was 15 at the time, Kevin Richardson, who was also 15 at the time, Yusuf Salem, who was also 15 at the time, Raymond Santana, who was 14, and Corey Wise, who was 16, being sentenced to prison for a crime that they did not commit. However, their innocence was not proven until 2002 when serial rapist Matthias Reyes came forward and confessed to the crime, providing DNA evidence that matched to that that was found on the scene. Following this confession and the subsequent investigation that occurred, all five men were exonerated and their innocence was broadcasted across the nation. So now we're going to be going deeper into the facts of the case as well as the investigation and the subsequent trial and just kind of the aftermath of everything that happened. So most of this information comes from Sharon Davies' journal article titled The Reality of False Confessions, Lessons of the Central Park Jogger Case. But in her article, she attributes most of this detailed information to the book Unequal Verdicts, The Central Park Jogger Trials, which is written by Timothy Sullivan. So on April 19, 1989, at around 9 p.m., Trisha Miley was jogging along a well-known loop in Central Park on the 102nd Street Transverse when she was attacked, beaten, and left for dead on the side of the track. Miley was discovered a few hours later, beaten so badly that she was simply unrecognizable, and medical professionals were unsure if she would even be able to survive her injuries. Some of her injuries included a cracked skull due to the blunt force trauma to her head. This trauma also resulted in a shattered eye bone, and her eyeball was actually displaced and had to be like replaced into her skull. She was also found with a body temperature that was well below average of a healthy human being, and it was said that she lost over about 75% of her blood. So the fact that she survived these injuries in this attack is just amazing within itself. The severity of her injuries was likely due to her inability to fight off the attack or call for help since she was found both bound and gagged by her t-shirt. Once in the hospital, Miley was unable to breathe on her own, and so she was placed in a medically induced coma, of which she did not wake up for nearly two weeks. So due to the brutality of the attack, police officers and detectives were, like, very adamant on finding out who could have possibly committed such a heinous crime, and they were determined that they needed to find them as soon as possible. This crime was being called the crime of the century. Like, it was just unheard of for someone to be attacked in Central Park, and let alone this brutally and this violent of an attack to happen. In nearly every article accounting the attack of Miley, there has also been an account of various other crimes that took place the same night, and there's been an alleged connection between the cases, but it's never really been fully confirmed that these cases were connected with each other, especially following the confession of Matthias Reyes, because it didn't seem that he was part of this grander crime spree. 
So in an article published by the New York Daily News, the day following the attack, Don Singleton and Don Gentle described this attack as part of a crime spree committed by a wolf pack of teenagers. This wolf pack of teenagers was said to include over 30 teenagers, and some of the crimes that they committed during the spree was that they were throwing rocks at a taxi cab, they had attempted to rob a 52-year-old old man carrying home his groceries, they attacked a couple of bicyclists, they hit another jogger on the head with a lead pipe, and then, of course, the brutal attack and rape of Trisha Miley. So nearly all 30 boys were questioned by the police, and within 48 hours of the attack, detectives had written, oral, and or videotaped confessions from five of the boys, which, as we mentioned earlier, were Antron McRae, Kevin Richardson, Yusuf Salem, Raymond Santana, and Corey Wise. So the trial of these young men was split into two different trials. So on August 18, 1990, McRae, Salem, and Santana were found guilty of sexual assault and robbery and were later sentenced between 5 to 10 years in prison. Later that same year, on December 11, 1990, Richardson was found guilty of the same charges and was also sentenced between 5 to 10 years in prison. Corey Wise, who was 16 at the time of the crime, was actually tried and convicted as an adult, and on December 11, 1990, he was found guilty of assault, sexual abuse, and rioting, and was sentenced between 5 to 15 years in prison. Without the boys' confession, there would simply be no case for the prosecution. There was a variety of evidence and inconsistencies within the boys' stories that just made it seem like there was no possible way that they could have committed this crime. Some of this evidence, or I guess the lack of evidence, included that the semen recovered from the crime scene did not match the DNA of any of the young men. None of these boys could pinpoint where in the park the attack took place, nor what the victim had been wearing at the time of the attack. And the drag marks into the woods suggested that there was only one attacker and that there was basically no way that there could have been five men involved in this. But as the boys did confess to this crime, that confession is ultimately what sealed their fate and what persuaded the jury that they were guilty of this crime. As mentioned earlier, over a decade following these convictions, in 2002, Matthias Reyes actually came forward and confessed to the attack and rape and said that he acted alone. Reyes was able to provide details about how, when, and where the attack had occurred, which, as we know, was something that the boys were not able to provide in their confessions, interviews, interrogations, any of that. And his account of what had occurred was actually ultimately corroborated by DNA matching him to the semen that was found at the crime scene. Reyes was also already a known and convicted serial rapist and killer, and his other attacks showcased some sort of signature that aligned with what was found at the scene of Miley's case which was that he bound and gagged all of his victims with in the same way that Miley was discovered. So with their very own articles of clothing, their very own t-shirt. So following Reyes's confession, all five men petitioned to the New York County Supreme Court to vacate their guilty verdicts and grant them proper relief. All of the boys except Wise would be granted this vacation of their verdicts and this proper relief ex post facto since they had already served their sentences and they were technically quote-unquote free men um, Wise was the only one that was still incarcerated at this time. So an investigation into Rhea's claims and the effect that they may have had on the men's trials was launched. So basically, they 
as part of procedure, they had to look into Ray's claims, make sure that they were in fact accurate, which with the DNA evidence, they kind of found out that yes, they were. But then they also had to look deeper into the effect that these claims would have had on the men's trial. So they had to see if these claims were presented at trial and this evidence was presented at trial, if it would have cast reasonable doubt on the boy's guilty verdict. Like if they if a jury would have reasonably found them to still be guilty of the crime, even including this evidence. On December 19, 2002, it was decided that if this evidence was to have been presented at the trial, that it would have cast serious doubt on the men's participation in the crimes. Therefore, Judge Tejada vacated each of the five convictions on all counts, stating that these men were, in fact, innocent during the entirety of these crimes and that they were charged for a crime that they did not commit. In 2014, the city of New York paid these five men a settlement for the injustices they faced at the hands of the system. It was rumored that they were awarded about a million dollars per year that they spent wrongfully incarcerated and spent their life behind bars. So the largest question that arose from this case was, why would these boys confess to a crime they did, they did not commit? Why would they say that they did something that they did not do, especially something as serious as the attack and the rape that occurred to Miley? Why would they say that they had any part in this if they simply did not? So although it is hard to understand and just kind of like grasp this idea, false confessions are actually a lot more common than the public perceives them to be. So according to the Innocence Project, of all the DNA exonerations that they have handled, about 25% of these convictions were due to false confessions. So when looking at these numbers at a larger scale and using the estimation that about 10% of the U.S. prison population is innocent, that would mean that about 50,000 convictions are a result of false confessions. That's a really big number of people that are wrongfully convicted in general. Like, that's just insane, and that's such a fault within our justice system. But the fact that 50,000 convictions are a result of false confessions, something needs to be looked at here. Like, that is a phenomenon within itself that needs to be examined outside of just the realm of wrongful convictions as a totality. So in the journal article, False Confessions, Causes, Consequences, and Implications for Reform, Saul Kassin breaks on this phenomenon even further and distinguishes three different types of false confessions. The three different types are voluntary, compliant, and internalized. So voluntary false confession occurs when a person claims responsibility for a crime that they did not commit without any sort of prompting from the police. They just decided to say, yes, I did this, even if they did not, in fact, do it. Compliant false confessions happen when the suspect of a crime admits to partaking in the crime in hopes of escaping the interrogation, avoiding punishment, or sometimes even to gain some sort of implied award. Compliant false confessions are due to that influence and are due to a decision made by the innocent person based on something that the police officer said or did that made them think they need to falsely confess to this crime. The third type of false confession, internalized false confessions, affect those more vulnerable suspects who not only confess to a crime that they did not commit, but due to just kind of like the interrogation techniques and like the manipulation that occurs or the suggestiveness, they actually believe that they did commit the crime. So this is usually someone like a juvenile who just does not have the same capacity an adult would or someone who is mentally um, disabled or has a lack of substantial capacity. So they just kind of don't really understand the entire process or they're influenced in such a way that not only do they confess, but they also believe that they actually did commit the crime when they did not. So when looking at the Central Park Five, it appears that their false confessions would fall under this category of a compliant false confession. 
all of the men recounted that they confessed to the crime because they believed that confessing to the crime would lead to the end of the interrogation and that they would all be able to go home. It's never explicitly been stated whether or not this belief was due to something the police officers told the boys or something that the detectives said if they did, they could go home or if it was just their lack of knowledge of the legal system and the proceedings. But either way, they said that they did confess because they thought that they would be able to go home after the fact. So when looking at how false confessions may come to be, Richard Leo and Stephen Jerizen address this issue in their journal article, The Three Errors, Pathways to False Confession and Wrongful Conviction. Leo and Jerizen suggest that there are three errors within criminal legal proceedings that result in false confessions. There's the misclassification error, the coercion error, and the contamination error. So the first error, the misclassification error, occurs when detectives wrongfully decide that an innocent person is guilty of a crime. This error is the origin of basically everything within a false confession. It's the start of any mistakes following because without the law enforcement making this decision and interrogating an innocent person, determining that they are guilty of a crime they did not commit, there would be no possibility of a false confession. So in relation to the Central Park Five, the detectives immediately believed that this larger group of 30 boys had somehow, was some way, was involved in the attack of Trisha Miley, and they were so set on this narrative and they re- that they refused to look elsewhere for possible suspects. They thought that their guy or their guys were within this group of 30 people, and so they just kind of focused on that and didn't really look elsewhere, which may have led them to Matthias Reyes sooner, and it may have saved them both time and money and all of this, but it definitely would have saved the five men who were wrongfully convicted, and it would have given them their life back, essentially. The second error is the coercion error. So the coercion error occurs after the detectives have identified an innocent person as their suspect, because they will then subject them to an accusatorial interrogation techniques in hopes of garnering this confession. This garnering of a confession is especially important in cases where the suspect is innocent because as we saw in the Central Park Five trial, usually this confession is the only piece of evidence that the detectives will have connecting this person to the crime. If they're completely innocent, there's going to be no other evidence connecting them to the crime and therefore they are relying on just the details provided in the confession to make them guilty. So this coercion may sometimes be physical, but more often than not, it is largely psychological. Detectives and police officers during an interrogation use manipulation in hopes of gaining this admission of guilt and gaining a confession. Sometimes this can take the form of depriving the suspect of food or water, inducing exhaustion by depriving the suspect of sleep, as well as both threats and punishments. This also may take the form of causing the suspect to believe that they have absolutely no choice but to comply with what it is the interrogator wants, which as we know is an admission of guilt and a subsequent confession. This relates to the idea that interrogations are largely stressful and unpleasant, like that is the point of them. Police officers and detectives are trying to get a confession out of a quote-unquote guilty suspect. So this atmosphere of stress and unpleasantness uh, kind of leads to a feeling of hopelessness to the individual who is being interrogated and so they have this and so they have this deep set desire to remove themselves from that situation and so if they believe that they are going to be removed from that situation by confessing to the crime and complying to what it is the interrogators want that can lead to the detectives coercing them into giving a confession so when looking at the central park five case 
All of the men said that they were deprived of food, drink, or sleep for over 24 hours and that they reasonably believed that they would be allowed to leave if they confessed to the crime. Corey Wise, he was the one that was charged as an adult. He had also alleged that in addition to the deprivation experienced by the others, so the lack of food, drink, sleep, all of that, he says that his confession was also coerced through the use of threat or physical abuse. In an official report commissioned by the New York City Police Department following the exoneration of these men, the details of each of their claims of coercion were investigated in depth to see if, one, they did occur in the first place, and then two, to see if any policy or procedure needed to be changed by the state to ensure that this did not happen again. However, they did not find any evidence to corroborate these claims. But the men, as well as the public, after the release of this document, as well as much more information that was released about the case, don't really believe this. If you wanted to, all of these interviews or most of these interviews are available on YouTube or on the internet. So you can go ahead and take a look and see for yourself what these interviews look like, what these different techniques look like. I would just say take it with a grain of salt that not everything may have been recorded. And so that is where some of these men's claims may be coming from is that they were promised things behind the scenes or that they were deprived of things behind the scenes and well on camera the police department did what they needed to do to make it look like everything was going according to policy and procedure. So the third and final error, the contamination error, concerns itself with the post-admission narrative of a confession. So basically that means that detectives can't simply have a suspect say, I did it, but rather they need some sort of story to back it up and some sort of details that kind of prove them to be even more guilty than just saying, I did it. This can be extremely difficult in cases of false confessions because if the suspect is truly innocent, then they have absolutely no idea of what occurred during the commission of the crime. So they have no idea of what it is they're supposed to be saying or what it is that would make them even seem even more guilty than they are by simply saying, I did it. So with this in mind, detectives use their expertise and different techniques and different interrogation strategies to influence, shape, and sometimes even script the narrative that they are looking to hear. So they basically guide the suspect into saying what it is they need to say in order for the detectives to obtain a persuasive and a convincing details of the event, account of the events, that will just further incriminate the suspect and possibly eventually even lead to a conviction. So in relation to the Central Park Five, the initial review of the interrogations in the pretrial motions as well as those following the men's exonerations, as we talked about, the final decision was that the interrogations were constitutional and that there was no evidence of illegal or unethical methods. The contamination error, I think, was kind of hard to prove that it occurred in this case. Honestly, I think it could be argued that it didn't occur. Some evidence that suggests that, or like why I think this, is because the boys' stories tended to change often, and they did not really line up with one another. As we mentioned before, they lacked a lot of key details of the crime. They didn't, they could not pinpoint exactly where the crime occurred, and they could not say what the victim was wearing at the crime, which kind of shows a lack of contamination, because if the detectives wanted to get, like, a secure story that they thought would prove that these men were guilty and that they all did it together I think there would have been more of a cohesive nature to their stories I think that more of their stories would have lined up they would have been provided with the details of where the attack occurred or, or what Miley was wearing that night but they didn't have these so I think that kind of shows that they didn't really have this contamination from the detectives 
But while this does show the lack of contamination, it also just further showcases how these confessions were later proved to be false. And it just kind of further questions why they were even taken to be the truth in the first place. If they were so all over the place, lacking key details, not lining up, that kind of thing. Just why were they taken to be so serious? So at the end of their article, Leo and Drizzen also provided a step-by-step summary of how false confessions can lead to wrongful convictions. When we go through these steps, you will see how each step clearly relates to the case of the Central Park Five. So as we mentioned, the first step is the misclassification error. So that is when the detectives and the police officers find an innocent person and determine that they are their guilty suspect, that they are the one who committed this crime. The second step is a combination of both the coercion and the contamination error, and it just is the general process of interrogating these innocent people and gaining a false confession from this interrogation. The third step occurs when the prosecution decides to file charges against the innocent subject, and usually when the prosecution decides to file these charges and to charge the innocent person with this crime, the only piece of evidence that they usually has is going to be this confession. As we mentioned earlier, a lot of these cases rely solely on this confession as the main piece of evidence, and so that's what the prosecution is using to file these charges against the innocent person. The fourth step occurs when the prosecution must convince the judge of probable cause that this innocent person did in fact commit the crime, and they must survive any pretrial motion from the defense for the suppression of the confession as evidence. So the defense could try to say that the evidence was coerced or that the interrogation techniques were unethical or unconstitutional. In order for these false confessions to lead for a wrongful conviction, the prosecution must survive these pretrial motions, meaning that their interrogation techniques must have been constitutional and there must have been no obvious evidence of coercion. The fifth and final step is that when in the absence of a plea bargain, the jury must find the innocent suspect guilty of the crime beyond a reasonable doubt. So as illustrated in the course of events of the Central Five Park case, they experienced each and every one of these steps and their false confessions resulted in a wrongful conviction. We already kind of talked about how the misclassification error, the coercion, and the contamination error were attributed to this case of the Central Park Five. But then the prosecution also did file the charges against each of the individuals, um, charging them for the sexual assault, robbery, and I believe it was rioting for Corey Wise. But then they also did convince the judge of the probable cause that these men were in fact guilty and that they were the suspects in this crime. And as we briefly mentioned, the defense did file a pretrial motion for the suppression of the confession evidence, but after a review of the interrogation techniques and the interviews and the obtainment of the confession, the court decided that, that there was no evidence of the boys being coerced or any unconstitutional kind of strategies or techniques. So therefore, the prosecution did survive those pretrial motions. And then the boys did plead not guilty, and so they did go to a jury trial where all five of them were found guilty of their crimes by the jury for beyond a reasonable doubt. So as illustrated in this case and many more, and despite what the public may believe, false confessions are actually a relatively frequent occurrence, and they happen more often than people would assume. They are also a huge injustice to those individuals who are wrongfully convicted on the basis of such confessions. I think that this is a definite fault within our legal system, and it is something that requires greater awareness, extensive research, even far past what we are doing now, and especially more methods of prevention. This should simply just not be happening within 
the criminal legal system that claims to be so fair and so just, but people are going to prison for a crime they did not commit based off of a false confession that is basically manipulated at the hands of the detectives and the police officers within the system. I highly suggest that if you are interested in learning more about the Central Park Five and just kind of these men's journeys and what it was that they went through, there are two different videos or media that I suggest watching. So there's the Netflix series, When They See Us, which is a mini series and it's a dramatization of real life events. So it involves like actors portraying these parts and it's more for like entertainment rather than strictly education, but it still tells the story of these men and what these men went through. But then there is also a 2012 documentary titled The Central Park Five. And this documentary shows real footage and interviews with those actually involved. So you see different media reporters, different people who were involved in the trial, as well as the five men themselves. Um, It's very informative. It was super interesting. And I would highly suggest watching that one if you're more interested in like the actual facts of the case and what occurred. There are also numerous YouTube videos, as I mentioned earlier, about the interviews. And these videos just kind of showcase their original confessions, the interviews, all of that said. And then there's also interviews with the men after being exonerated and when they are publicly claimed innocent, talking about their experience retroactively and like what had happened to them and how it had affected them, which is also very interesting. So if you're interested in learning more about this case, there are definitely other places you can look and I highly suggest doing so if that interests you. But with that being said, that is all for this episode of Nefarious. Once again, thank you guys for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's case and today's discussion, and I will see you guys next time with just yet another case, so see you then.